welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 12 and episode 12. And we're talking today about servant leadership in the kingdom. The context is we're in the story of the Last Supper. We're going to look at a number of different texts in this episode, parallel passages from John and Luke and Matthew that tell us little bits of the story of something very important that happens at the Last Supper. We're going to start looking at John 13 verses 21 to 30 in a few moments. But as always in these talks and these episodes, we're trying to get everything firmly in context and work out what the storyline is. And you've probably been following through the different series. I hope you have. And if you've been with us on the journey, you'll know that we're in the middle of the very exciting, thrilling and tense story of the last week of Jesus's life, which we've been telling in series 11 and now through to series 12. We've seen the very dramatic events of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey with huge crowds around him on Palm Sunday and heading on Monday to the temple for a major confrontation with the religious leaders by overturning the tables of their market trading exercise in the temple. Then we've seen a very tense day in the temple compound on Tuesday of that week whilst Jesus was being questioned and then he counter-questioned his opponents. And we see this great conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment being built up to a final climax. And Jesus prophetically knows what the outcome is going to be. It's going to be his death. He's going to be arrested, tried, and ultimately executed through the activities of the religious authorities, working in association with the military rulers and political rulers, the Romans. He's been warning his disciples all the way through that this is the eventual outcome. So having seen the events of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, then probably on Wednesday takes place the anointing by Mary of Jesus in the house of Simon the leper in the village of Bethany, just a few kilometers outside the city of Jerusalem. And it is at that point that one of Jesus's followers, Judas Iscariot, slips out of the meal and the social time they were spending at that home and heads off back into the city just a few kilometers away and goes to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the rulers from the Sanhedrin council and offers to betray Jesus. Now, they've been waiting for this moment because their dilemma is they want to arrest him, but they don't want to do it in public because the crowds are generally very sympathetic to Jesus and there might be a huge civic unrest if they did that. They want to arrest him privately. So we now know in the text that Judas has been to them and they've offered him money and he said, I'll come back to you again when I know his movements and where he's going to be at certain times and I will enable you to arrest him privately. Judas then rejoins the disciples. No one knows what he's done. Jesus is aware through supernatural revelation that he is betraying him. But all the other disciples don't know. Then they gather for the Last Supper. And this story is the one that's unfolding at the moment. 
Before they gather, of course, not only have they been in Bethany, but Jesus on that Tuesday evening after all the questioning had told them a great deal about future judgment on Israel and the end times, the second coming of Christ. And we've discussed that in detail at the beginning of this series. So there's an awful lot happening. But the immediate context that we've been looking at in the last few episodes is the gathering together for the Last Supper. We're now part the way through the Last Supper. And we noticed that Peter and John were the ones who were called to prepare the upper room in the city and to prepare all the food for this Passover meal, which they began to share. And then we noticed a couple of episodes ago, Jesus in a very extraordinary and amazing way, as described in John 13, during the meal with his 12 disciples around him, suddenly takes the form of a servant, a domestic servant, and washes their feet. And this causes quite some reaction, particularly in Peter, who thinks, well, I can't imagine any reason why my master should serve me by washing my feet, taking the place of a servant. That becomes very important for our episode today, where we're going to discuss servant leadership. And then in the last episode, we looked specifically at the institution of the Lord's Supper or the communion or what we call the Eucharist in some church traditions. During the meal, Jesus took the main elements of the meal, the wine and the bread, two of the main elements of the meal, the wine and the bread, and he made them especially significant describing them as symbols of his life given in death. The blood of Jesus being represented by the wine and his body being represented by the bread, which was to be broken. So they became symbols of the death of Jesus. And he described it, as we saw in Luke's account, as a new covenant that he was making through his sacrificial death on the cross. And we looked at some details of that when we saw that event taking place. Now, all that having happened, then we come back in the story to the question of Judas. It's a very tense situation. He's there as one of the disciples, apparently a totally loyal follower. But we know in the story he's already been to the high priest in the Sanhedrin and offered to betray Jesus. He has decided already that he is going to betray him. But we don't know when this is going to happen. And it turns out that that moment is right now. It's just about to happen. We're going to start in John 13. We're going to read verses 21 to 30. And Jesus has been talking about betrayal in the previous verses which we read in a previous episode and just warning that somebody's going to betray him and then suddenly this becomes quite distressing for Jesus in the middle of this meal so this is an intimate moment with his disciples and yet a painful moment because something terrible is about to happen John 13 verses 21 to 30 After he had said this, Jesus 
was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Now, this is a really painful and poignant moment in the life of Jesus. No wonder he was distressed. He could see one of the people he'd invested so much of his time in turning against him and preparing to betray him. And there's an interesting point here because Simon Peter is next to a disciple who's next to Jesus at the table. And this disciple is described in verse 23 as the disciple whom Jesus loved, an anonymous statement. And it's the first time we get this statement in John's gospel. But there are several more references to this disciple in the subsequent chapters. Who is it? Well, scholars have debated and argued over this for many years. But the most likely explanation is that it is actually John himself, John the Apostle, John the disciple of Jesus. Now, if we take John to be the author of this gospel, which I do, not everyone agrees with that position, but I've taken that position all the way through right from the beginning. If he is the author, then actually he's describing himself But he doesn't want to name himself out of a certain shyness or reluctance to be prominent in the story. So he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a representation of close friendship. Jesus had a particular friendship with John, who was one of the inner circle, Peter, James and John. You'll probably remember in earlier episodes, Jesus sometimes took them aside in a special way and he's going to do it again shortly. So this disciple asked Jesus, who is it going to be? And Jesus identified him by the act of giving a piece of bread to one of the other disciples. And it turned out to be Judas, who very quickly went out. Still, the others didn't know what exactly Judas had gone to do. Their assumption was he was doing a job for Jesus because he had practical responsibilities He ran the finances for the disciples. That meant he had to go and buy things regularly and make practical arrangements. And maybe that's what Jesus had in mind, according to the other disciples. So they weren't yet ready to fully understand what was going on in this situation. Now, Matthew adds an interesting addition in Matthew 26, verses 23 to 25, when Jesus's words are quoted 
Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him that he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. That's Matthew's addition to the conversation that passed between them. So Judas has gone. He's gone to the high priest in the Sanhedrin and he'll reappear in the story very soon. He now knows what Jesus's plans are for that evening. He's sharing the supper and he's going to head out from there late in the evening And he has understood from conversation he's had with Jesus that Jesus plans to head to a certain place, which we know is the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, later on that evening. He's got that information in mind and he's going to the high priests and the Sanhedrin to tell them. So Judas will reappear in our story in a very short period of time. Meanwhile, turning to Luke's account, Luke 22 verse 24 first of all and then we're going to read the following passage at this very time Judas having left another discussion started amongst the disciples a rather surprising discussion which is described here a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest So even at this critical hour, the disciples are thinking about their own roles in Jesus's kingdom. It seems surprising to us that they should be thinking about this when there is an imminent threat of Jesus's death and the dispersal of the disciples by the authorities, which they are aware of in general sense. But clearly, They're not focusing on that. They're more focusing on Jesus' power and ability to overcome all opposition. And they have a very strong theology and understanding that Jesus is going to bring in what we call the messianic kingdom, God's kingdom in full power on the earth with the Messiah ruling. And they're pretty convinced that when he does that, which might be imminent, they would receive positions of authority a kind of political and religious authority in Jewish society and extending beyond that. That's what they had in mind. However, Jesus took the opportunity of this dispute to teach them very clearly about leadership. Verses 25 to 28 of Luke 22. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. 
Jesus here is trying to help his disciples, as he's done before, to get the right idea of what leadership in God's kingdom is all about. And he does so by considering the way that society views authority, particularly Gentile society. Now, when he's talking about the Gentiles, Jesus is talking primarily about the Romans, who were the Gentile rulers of the country, the only Gentile authorities that the disciples fully experienced. Now, their model of leadership is based on the fact that those who rule are those who have power, political power, economic power, social power, military power, the power of force. It's based on power, not servanthood. And they describe themselves as benefactors in the same way that the Romans to a great extent, would describe themselves to the Jews as their benefactors. They would say, look, we've come, we've taken over your country, we rule your country, but look, we're producing good things. We're improving the roads, we're building infrastructure in cities, we're providing security through the army, we've got a clear taxation system. We are the benefactors of your society. But in fact, it's all about power, and they were drawing resources out of the country to support the Roman Empire. What Jesus says is, in fact, the greater authority you have, the greater you are the servant of others. And he describes himself as the ultimate role model. Christian leaders should model themselves on the leadership style of Jesus. It's not without authority. It has a huge authority. But that authority is the innate inner authority of the God-given gifts that an individual has and the Holy Spirit's empowering of those gifts that enables that person to be a preacher or a teacher or a pastor or a musician or an evangelist or any other ministry in the church. But they're to use their gifts to serve others, not to build any particular hierarchy or power structure. Now, the Roman authorities in Israel at the time had a very clear hierarchy and power structure. You knew exactly where you were in the power structure, and the ultimate leader was the governor, Pontius Pilate. And all authority stemmed from him in the country, and he was accountable directly to the emperor. Moving on, Luke 22, verse 29 to 30, Jesus develops their understanding further. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is saying there is going to be a real kingdom of God. It exists now and it is going to come in much fuller manifestation and reality sometime in the future and the disciples are going to have a very critical role in that kingdom. In fact, 
their role is going to be such they're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which seems to be a position of of real institutional power in the messianic kingdom. But the whole point about this discussion is this is much further in the future. This is associated with when Jesus returns. He's going to return in power and amongst many other things, he's going to be ruling over the redeemed people of Israel and the disciples are going to be assisting. They're going to be ruling over redeemed and reconstructed nation. Jesus hints about these things of the messianic kingdom. He doesn't develop them into much detail. So we only want to go as far as the detail leads us. But he is telling them, you're going to have real power in my kingdom. But your task in order to reach that position is to adopt the role of a servant leader. Verses 31 to 34, continuing the narrative, speaking to Peter by his other name. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So this talk about a future messianic kingdom is all very well. But in the intervening period right now, the disciples are going to be tested in a profound way. Jesus describes a spiritual battle that's going on. Not only has Satan and the demonic powers deceived and misled and taken control of the activities of Judas Iscariot through his willing giving in to sin over a long period of time, but those demonic forces want to undermine, disunite and ultimately neutralize the rest of the disciples so they cannot continue the work of Jesus after he's died and risen again. Even Peter's going to be tried very severely within a few hours, Jesus predicts. He's going to be denying that he's a follower of Jesus or even knows him. Peter finds this incredible that Jesus should say such a thing, but we will see as the story unfolds, that this is exactly what happens. He will deny Jesus three times. And then moving on to the last section of this passage, verses 35 to 38. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Now, this is an enigmatic and really interesting passage, and it's about 
preparing for ministry in a new context. Ministry without the presence of Jesus and ministry in places which are less friendly than the Jewish districts that the disciples have been accustomed to travelling in, especially in Galilee. Jesus described the fact that when he sent them out, they always had a full provision. He's referring back here to the sending out of the 12, as recorded in Luke 9 and Matthew 10, and the sending out of the 72, as recorded in Luke 10. And we've discussed those itinerant ministries in previous episodes in some detail. But it's interesting that Jesus encouraged them to travel light and to rely on hospitality and God's provision wherever they went. Now he's saying they need to prepare for a different season and they need to prepare concerning making provision for their needs and being careful about security. You see, they received hospitality wherever they went in Israel, the disciples. There were always people who would be favourable to them. And so they didn't need to consider provisions. And they didn't need to consider security that much while Jesus was popular. But now they're going to be travelling far and wide in dangerous situations and they're going to be going long distance across different parts of the Roman world where security on the road was a very great issue. But there's an interesting question here. What does he mean by the reference to swords? These were short swords that were carried around frequently by people for personal protection. When Jesus speaks about having a sword in the future, is he talking literally or is he talking symbolically or metaphorically? That's an important question for us to consider. You can argue it both ways. I would propose to you that it's unlikely that this is a literal statement because if you sell your cloak, then you're selling one of the most important things you need in order to travel. So it seems unlikely that he literally meant you sold your cloak in order to buy a sword. But the sword is a representation of security. And so he's pointing, I think, towards taking consideration of security as you are traveling far and wide. He's preparing them for a much more dangerous and difficult lifestyle when they will, all of them, at one stage or another, have left the nation of Israel and they're heading into much more hostile cultural environments where they are a minority people, the Jews, who are not favoured and they are preaching a gospel that will be a threat and a challenge to people. The reason I think this is probably not literal is that in all other contexts, Jesus speaks about non-violence And the swords that are mentioned here in verse 38 are almost certainly swords that were discovered in the venue because there's no reference to the disciples ever carrying swords at an earlier stage. And if you look in the book of Acts, there's no reference to them resorting to swords for self-defense, for personal security at any point later on. And Jesus advocates a position of 
non-violence in connection with the gospel advance and the lack of use of force at a very fundamental level in the Sermon on the Mount. But also, interestingly enough, in an incident that follows very quickly after this, which we're going to look at in a subsequent episode, which I think sheds a lot of light on this passage. Because wherever these two swords came from, and I'm proposing they were ones that they discovered in the venue and weren't carrying beforehand, we find that later on when Jesus is arrested, as we'll see in a subsequent episode, Peter, taking one of these swords, strikes one of the people and injures one of the people who's in that party, a servant of the high priest. And Jesus heals that servant and rebukes Peter for the use of that sword, which suggests to us that this comment here about the sword is a symbolic or metaphorical statement and what he's really referring to is consider security. Be careful as you are traveling and consider security and make careful provision for your physical needs because you're going to be in much more adverse circumstances than you were when you were traveling around Israel. Now, some final reflections as we complete this fascinating episode with all its different themes. With Judas's betrayal, we can note that Satan exploits Judas's weakness, his particular weakness concerning money. It says in a number of times in the gospel that money was an attraction to him, that he stole money from the common purse, and it was money that he was offered by the authorities. It's money that tempted him to sin. That, of course, is a common story. That's a common temptation for many Christians. But there's a wider spiritual battle going on through this story. Judas's actions are overseen by the sovereign God who's going to turn them to the good, to the benefit of his salvation plan, even though Judas will head to destruction. But there's a wider satanic strategy to undermine the disciples so that they're unable to sustain the impact of the events that are going to happen when Jesus is arrested, tried and executed, which is all going to happen within the next 24 hours. But Jesus says that he has prayed for his disciples so that they will come through. And indeed, they did come through a terrible, traumatic time. And they found their confidence again and they were able to launch the church under God's grace very shortly afterwards. We'll come to that story later on. There's a lot here about servant leadership, which is worth reflecting on if you have any leadership responsibilities. And my final thought is that Jesus is quoting here Isaiah 53 in verse 37. Isaiah 53 verse 12, which is a part of a very important prophecy about the suffering servant, which we've referred to on a number of occasions, which is fulfilled in Jesus. He became the Messiah and the suffering servant who died on behalf of others and was raised again to life. Thanks for being with us on this episode. I look forward to welcoming you again soon. 
You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.